are listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 12. It's the season finale of season four of Ohio V the World. Today we are celebrating Black History Month by talking about the famed Tuskegee Airmen and their connection to the Buckeye State. We'll be looking at the famous flying group, their contribution to American history, and the segregation of the armed forces that would last until 1948. We'll talk about these courageous African-American men who fought fascism abroad and racism here at home and how they were at the forefront of the fight for freedom and justice. I learned so much research in these guys and also found some amazing Tuskegee Airmen with ties to Ohio. We'll talk about some of them today and also the many years they spent after the war in central Ohio when the Tuskegee Airmen were uh, headquartered at Lockbourne Air Base in southern Franklin County here in Columbus. Uh, Known as the Tuskegee Airmen because they all trained at Tuskegee Army Airfield uh, TAAF as it's known in Alabama and we'll talk about how the program for these African American pilots came about and the top level pilots that Tuskegee produced. They were known as the Red Tails for their distinctive markings on their nose and their rudders uh, and it's a great way to end this season really fun episode uh, honoring those guys here as we celebrate Black History Month here in February. Our beer for the episode today is Brew Dogs Clockwork Tangerine uh, you can go to brewdog.com. They're a Scottish brewer that opened a giant brewery here in Columbus, Ohio. It's actually in Canal Winchester, which is just a few miles away from where the Tuskegee Airmen were stationed at Lockbourne immediately following the war. You know, many of them stuck around here in central Ohio and became valuable members of the community. And we'll introduce, like I said, three or four of those Tuskegee Airmen from Ohio throughout the episode. But Brewdog, a great member of the community, this Clockwork Tangerine, just a real citrusy IPA, only 4.5%, and you can drink plenty of these without getting uh, too tipsy. Uh, They serve them at the Columbus Blue Jackets games is where I first had my Clockwork Tangerine. But they're all over town. They've got a a brew pub in the Short North here in Columbus. They have a brew pub also in Franklinton that's very popular, and you can always uh, go to their giant campus, like we said, in Canal Winchester which is on Gender Road. Again, go to BrewDog.com, and you can learn more about it. Our guests today are Warren Mott, who is the director of Mott's Military Museum in Groveport, Ohio, just a few miles from Lockbourne and a few miles from the BrewDog uh, facility, and also is Dr. Anthony Milburn. Uh, Dr. Milburn, a professor of history, the chairman of the Humanities Department at Central State University in Wilberforce, Ohio. Um, and we'll talk with both of them about the Tuskegee Airmen and their service during World War II, their creation, the history of African Americans in the military, and also uh, their time in Columbus following the war when they were all stationed uh, in Lockbourne. We'll discuss the uh, types of missions that the Red Tails were doing over the skies of Europe 
from 1943 to the end of the war. How they brought a whole new wave of destruction to Hitler's Third Reich, and they battled the Nazi Luftwaffe, the feared air force of the Nazis. Well, here's some oral histories from the Ohio Tuskegee men. These are so important as these men pass away. They're really all we're going to have to remember them. Um, you know, as our guest, Dr. Milburn, talks about, there's an occasional documentary um, and the occasional movie. You look at George Lucas's movie, Red Tails, from 2012, uh, starring Cuba Gooding Jr., Michael B. Jordan, uh, Brian Cranston. Um, movies like that. There was one with Lawrence Fishburne in, in the 90s as well, called Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, but it's important to remember these men who cracked the racial stereotypes of the day. They accelerated the civil rights movement. There's no doubt that the achievement and the ability that they showed uh, in the skies over Europe did end up accelerating that civil rights movement here in America. People didn't think African Americans could even fly planes. That was kind of the overriding uh, racist sentiment in 1940s white America. Uh, but they proved that wrong on every level. And the Tuskegee Airmen had one of the best track records uh, of, on their missions as, of any group in the war. The 99th Pursuit Squadron, the 332nd Fighter Group, um, all did just amazing work. So we're ready to take off. It's the final episode of Season 4, guys. It's Episode 12. We're talking to Tuskegee Airmen on Ohio vs. Segregation. Anthony Milburn. Like we said, Dr. Milburn is the chairperson of the Humanities Department at the historically black Central State University at Wilberforce. Uh, that's in Western Ohio. We asked Dr. Milburn to join us because he's a wealth of knowledge about a ton of areas. But we also found out that he has a personal connection with the Red Tails, with the Tuskegee Airmen. Well, my, my dad was... Uh... Typically, when we use the term Tuskegee Airmen, we think about the pilots. My dad was not a pilot. Right. He was a uh, guy who did a number of different things um, in the Air Force. His primary responsibilities were electronics and uh, kept radios working both from airplanes to ground and various different ground installations. And uh, he also served as a photographer. So I have a pretty interesting collection of... I bet you do. Where did, where did he serve when he was stateside, do you know? He, he was at Lockbourne. That's how, in fact, I ended up in Columbus. Uh, my father served uh, both at Lockbourne, Wright Pat, um, Texas, Alaska. I ended up, that's how I ended up being born in Alaska. African Americans have been serving in the U.S. military, really, I guess, since the French and Indian War, before we were a country, and in the Revolution. But in 1925, the Army War College releases a book, a uh, study known as The Use of Negro Manpower in War. This incredibly racist, incredibly inaccurate study, it leaves out the accomplishments of African-American fighters from every war, but especially those thousands who distinguished themselves on the Western Front in France in World War I. I implore you, by the way, you've got to go see 1917, the new movie by Sam Mendes. It's an absolute masterpiece, one of the best war movies I've ever seen. We talked to Anthony Milburn, uh, Dr. Milburn, about the study, the use of Negro manpower. Well, that study in and of itself is pretty much, that's the purpose, to try to prevent the use of, or lack of a just justification of use for African Americans in, uh, in combat zones. But the interesting part about that is it is a total disavowing of the knowledge of the entire existence of the United States military. 
African Americans have been fighting in uh, the military and actively, aggressively, successfully in combat roles since actually before the United States uh, existed, when fighting in the French and Indian War, obviously the Revolution, um, the War of 1812, which is significant here in the state of Ohio because of the Battle of Lake Erie, obviously the, the Civil War, uh, which again is important to us here in Ohio. But when you get to the manpower study, it is actually a collection of pieces of information um, out of what would later come to be known as the War um, College, um, studies of um, seniors and at the military academy. And it's basically just a effort to whitewash and give some kind of academic uh, support to the racism of the nation at the time. You also the point um, of World War One in and of itself, massive, uh, active, aggressive roles played by African Americans in, in the combat zone, most significantly being the uh, Harlem Hellfighters. I'm so glad Dr. Milburn mentioned the Harlem Hellfighters. We've got to talk about them. The Hellfighters were an all-black, the 369th Army Regiment. They served not only with distinction on the front lines of the Western Front in World War I, but they battled back the final major German offensive of the war in 1918. They were also the first Americans to see frontline combat. Almost an entire month before the rest of the American Expeditionary Force uh, really made it to the front in France. They fought under French leadership. Uh, they withstood heavy bombardment, the Second Battle of the Marne, these bloody terrible battles that you see in you know the movie 1917 they lived it I mean, world war one was the absolute worst conflict i know of for the individual soldier um maybe the pacific in world war ii would certainly qualify the russian front in world war ii but the western front in world war one was was no picnic and it was different from other wars in that in the civil war you know you'd see there'd be a battle for a day or two and the armies would withdraw or they'd move uh, wait for reinforcements. You know, Gettysburg lasts three terrible days. The Harlem Hellfighters were basically in one giant battle for 191 days. Over six months against the German army, gassed, shelled, going over the top into machine gun fire, leaving the trenches. I mean, these units uh, and their regimental band, they're also attributed with bringing American jazz music to Europe. They had this great uh, band in their regiment. Uh, to the awe of the French people, really moved music forward. But all this heroism and death is disrespected and discriminated against as soon as they step off the boat, as soon as they get back to the States. There's actually two experiences of African Americans in World War I. The very positive experience, as we see with the Hellfighters, and then uh, the 92nd and, and the 91st uh, Infantry Divisions. One of those divisions served solely under American control. The other one once fought with the French. Right. Those who fought with the French had a very different experience than those who fought under American control. You know, just to prove how discriminated against African Americans were in the army, even after you know this heroic service from people like the Harlem Hellfighters, there was not a single graduate from West Point, from Colonel Charles Young in 1889 to Benjamin O. Davis Jr. in 1936. Go back to listen to our episode last season, Ohio vs. Discrimination, where we talk about Colonel Young, who lived in Wilberforce, where Dr. Milburn is a professor at Central State. Uh, great episode, I think it's episode 8 from last year, Ohio vs. Discrimination. 
We bring up Benjamin O. Davis Jr., who would be the first African-American general in the United States Air Force, uh, because he would end up being the head, the commander of the Tuskegee Airmen. His father, Benjamin O. Davis Sr., uh, would be the first general in the U.S. Army. I mean, quite an African-American general, quite a family there. But we asked Dr. Milburn about Benjamin O. Davis's graduation from West Point in 1936, why there's such a lack of African-American officers in the U.S. military during this time, in Davis Jr.'s ascension to the top of the Tuskegee Airmen. It is. He is, in fact, the fourth person, to, fourth African-American to graduate from West Point. Part of the reason why there are not a lot of people who graduate in the early years, say that tongue-in-cheek, um, of African-Americans is because the way they were treated, silenced. In other words, you go through four years of no one speaking to you outside of the necessities of being a student, uh, having no roommates more often than not, because more often than not, you were the only African-American there at the time. Uh, so these things weighed heavily on, on people, no matter how academically they might have been prepared. So that is one of the reasons why you have this big gap between Charles Young and Benjamin Davis Jr. Uh, the, the interesting thing is that when he graduates, when Benjamin Davis Jr. graduates from West Point and is commissioned a second lieutenant, at that point, there are only two African-Americans in the military, two African-American officers in the military. Benjamin O. Davis Jr. and Benjamin O. Davis Sr. They are right. literally the only two officers in the United States military. Um, he does get some advanced training. He is tagged to be the commander relatively early on. Um, but he goes down to Tuskegee and takes takes command of uh, what would eventually become the Tuskegee Airmen. African-Americans, though, had competed and battled against Nazi Germany before the war. Uh, and we'll talk about some of those most famous instances. But honestly, as Hitler and the Third Reich continue to annex and bully Europe in the 1930s, the U.S. seems powerless to stop them. They don't seem to have the will to do it anyways. But as we talked about with the Harlem Hellfighters beating back the German army in 1918, the only real victories in, versus the Nazis in the late 1930s were from triumphs of two of our most famous athletes, two black athletes, Jesse Owens, who wins his four gold medals in Berlin, and the Nazi Olympics there in 1936, um, and the epic boxing victory of Joe Lewis over German Max Schmeling when Lewis wins the heavyweight championship of the world in a fight at Yankee Stadium in 1938. Uh, go back and listen to our first season, one of my favorite episodes we ever did, Ohio versus the Nazis. We did a great Jesse Owens episode um, that you should go back and hear. It's a lot more than just his running, uh, obviously. There's so much more going on there. Uh, and also, PBS is putting out a big uh, American Experience documentary on the Joe Louis-Max Schmeling fight called The Fight. Um, and really, that was a America versus the Nazis battle. That's how people saw it. And these victories swelled national pride throughout the country. We play you some clips from those famous events. The Olympic Games have begun. The best athletes in the world have come to Berlin, and 51 nations are represented here today. The six fastest sprinters of the world are getting ready. Owens, America. Gorschmeyer, Germany. And Metcalf of America. <laughs> Owens is ahead. Strandberg and Gorschmeyer fighting. Ozendorf challenges Wyckoff. Metcalf comes up. But Owens wins in 10.3. 
second Metcalf America, third Ozendorf Holland. To Yankee Stadium to see Joe Lewis versus Max Malin. In one minute and 49 seconds, an American fist won a victory. But it wasn't the final victory. No, that victory is going to take a little longer and a whole lot more American fists. Now those two men that were matched in the ring that night are matched again. This time in a far greater arena and for much greater stakes. Max Smaley, a paratrooper in the Nazi army. Men turned into machines, challenging the world. Joe Lewis, training for the fight of his up, life. Germans invade Poland on September 1st, 1939 and Europe is hurled into war yet again. This will not be the first time I've mentioned on this show FDR's poor record on civil rights. He's basically forced into allowing African Americans to serve in the war effort, but we talked to Dr. Milburn just about why FDR seems to get a pass. Um, FDR was a pragmatist. Um, he saw a need or a way that that would bear fruit for him. There's also a little bit of nudging from Eleanor, I'm sure. Um, there's also the fact that I don't think while he wasn't a big super duper pro yay African Americanist, I do believe he was far more liberal than many of his peers. Sure. Um, going back to uh, the the comments or conversation we just had about World War One, um, Woodrow Wilson is definitely the most racist president of the 20th century, and I think FDR was simply a step away from that kind of mentality, especially in the Democratic Party. Uh, it is a shift. It recognizes a shift. And I think that's why a lot of people give him a pass. It is the shift um, of African-Americans from being Republicans to being Democrats. Definitely not the end all, but I think that's what it is. It's more about him being a, a leader of a path, not his own individual drive. Also a major player in this point in time is Judge William Hasty. Uh, he was a trailblazer. Is the reason we mentioned him for civil rights. The first African-American federal judge. The first federal appellate judge. Uh, he served as governor of the United States Virgin Islands. But Hasty was also named by FDR to be the Undersecretary of War under Secretary Stimson. Uh, this is an important appointment. It's Hasty. Uh, he was able to argue inside the administration for equal treatment of African-Americans in the Army. He was instrumental in, in the creation of the African-American pilots training program that would become, you know, the Tuskegee Airmen we're talking about today. That program, which really began in earnest in the summer of 1941. Uh, we talked with Dr. Milburn about him. I also mentioned him uh, because he shares the name of my son, so I just had to throw him in. But he's a massively important individual uh, in terms of the Tuskegee piece. He is um, Under Secretary of War, advisor to the Secretary of War, Stimson. And it was advisor on race issues. And so he's the one to help push this idea forward. He would eventually resign from that 
position in um, in protest. He also was the uh, dean of the College of Law at Howard University, where he and Charles Houston began to put together an idea of training lawyers, which would eventually become very important in the civil rights movement. In fact, they are among those who are responsible for training people like Thurgood Marshall. Deep inside Alabama, a famous school called the Tuskegee Institute. It was founded on July 4th of 1881. And since that Independence Day, it has graduated many thousands into agriculture, into science, into industry. This school was the first of its kind, and its founder, Booker T. Washington, was a pioneer who broke open a road for others to follow. Three years ago, this was just another farm in Alabama. More than trees had to be cleared away. There was misunderstanding and distrust and prejudice to be cleared away. Three years ago, there was only an idea but ideas are powerful things. And, today- and as we said before, the African-American pilots at, at Tuskegee began training in the summer of 1941. We asked Dr. Milburn to discuss, you know, just what was the Tuskegee Army Airfield? Where was it? Uh, and, and how did it come about? It is in Alabama. It's uh, uh, not too far away from the uh, Georgia state line. Uh, it is not actually the only uh, institution used to train Tuskegee Airmen is just the most important, the most significant one. Um, there's a couple other uh, HBCUs that are involved in the training African-American troops. The one that comes to mind, though not, again, not the only one, is uh, North Carolina A&T and Hampton also involved. There are um, efforts prior to the war to get some training um, facilities in Chicago and Cleveland. Um, and so the end result, though, is that uh, the primary place of training would be in Tuskegee. And part of that has to do with, quite frankly, uh, patterns of weather, which allow the South to be a better place to train pilots, and also racism. Idea being that African-American pilots learning to fly will do so better in an environment surrounded by people who deal with black people better. And nearly every oral interview and oral history we listened to and reviewed and prepped for this episode, one of the first things these pilots mention is the trip down south by many of the, the northern Tuskegee Airmen and the talk about just how different life in the south was. Really from as early as the bus trip to Tuskegee, the, you know, the problems began, arguments, fights with bus, bus drivers and racism from passengers, it was obvious and it was different. Many of the Ohio pilots told similar stories of, of this kind of abuse. That's not to say that there wasn't rampant racism in the North, but it was, like I said, it was very different in the South. We talked with Dr. Milburn about just the culture shock experienced by all these Northern pilots and the difference between kind of Southern and Northern racism in the 1940s. Massively different. Um, That's not to say there isn't racism in the Midwest or Ohio, because there is. It's just different. In the South, you saw people literally just beaten, I mean, poorly, poorly treated, where in the North you had racism, but it was a little bit more subtle. Um, There are 
places in the north people don't actually think or realize this. There are places in the north where blacks cannot eat or are um, discouraged from eating at, at lunch counters. Where in the south, there's no, dis- no no subtle discouragement. You are blatantly told. You can go to the back door. And that's actually, quote unquote, a good thing. Because a lot of places wouldn't even feed you at the back door. These are new experiences for people coming out of uh, Ohio and the Midwest. Because you have to also realize there's a lot of black folks who had never been on the individual level, never been south. Right. They might be the children or grandchildren, even the great grandchildren. And that was the last attachment to the south and this kind of behavior. One of those Ohioans who makes the journey to Tuskegee was was Harold Sawyer. Our second guest today is Warren Mott. Warren, the director of the great Mott's Military Museum in Groveport, Ohio, here in central Ohio. Uh, you can go to mottsmilitarymuseum.org. Go visit that museum. They've got things from every single war. Uh, I think this is our second episode with, with Warren. Um, but Captain Sawyer, uh, Harold Sawyer, he served on the board of Mott's Military Museum for years. He lived in the Columbus area for most of his life after joining the Red Tails. He's one of the many Ohio Tuskegee Airmen we will discuss today. We discussed Harold's service with Warren Mott, uh, where he knew him as a fellow board member for many years. He flew 130 missions, which is pretty unbelievable too, but Harold never talked about that when he got back. I I tried to convince him, and, and later in life he did start talking to the school kids which I said, you are the example these kids need. <laughs> Living history, yeah. Yeah, and I, 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 I was, uh, uh, Harold was such a smart man. When, you, when he was on my board, you know, he was, he was very uh, an in-depth thinker about various things that we were doing. And I, uh, I, I admired him for that because, like I say, he was such a gentleman. He, he, he almost looked like Clark Gable, too. <laughs> the pictures of him, which I have in the museum. Yeah, he, we looked at some, yeah. He, he was a good-looking guy, but he was really a very interesting man and a super person, just like, like I say, I can't. But very unassuming and didn't think what he had did was all that great, except he did tell me that he realized when he was at Tuskegee doing the uh, training and trying to become a pilot that that... Uh, he had to do it. He said, I had to do the best I could possibly do because he said, I realized it was not just for me, I was doing it. Yeah. Uh, he said, my entire race depended upon the fact that I could do this because at the time, the Tuskegee experiment is what they called it, took place. They didn't think the black pilots were capable of right. becoming a pilot. Uh, so uh, Eleanor Roosevelt kind of helped that deal out. In March 1941, just as the Tuskegee program was getting off the ground, it got a boost of publicity when First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt visited the airfield. She decided to take a ride with a black instructor. This caused quite an uproar in some communities when the picture was printed in the newspapers across the country. We talked to both our guests about Eleanor's famous flight with the Tuskegee Airmen. It's true. Um, You can actually see a couple of different photographs in a couple of different uh, places. I believe there's a photograph in the Chicago Tribune. and she did. She made a big point of it. In fact, the story is that one of the white instructors was going to take her for a flight, and she pointed to one of the senior African-American students at the time and said, no, I want to go fly with him. <laughs> she went there, and she was uh, way ahead of her time. <laughs> she went to that base, and she's watching. Look at him. She says, why don't I want to take a ride with one of them? He said, well, we'll give you. And they wanted to give her a white pile. She said, no. I want this guy over here, you know, one of the Tuskegee Airmen, the black pilots. And they said, well, are you sure? Well, I was told later that 
Eleanor's aide went in and called the president and said, your wife wants to take a ride, <laughs> but she wants to go up with a black pilot. What should I do? She did that and landed, and the photographers were there. She opened the door. surprising things I learned you know despite Eleanor's famous flight during you know and during the war there's almost no publicity in the white press about the Tuskegee Airmen the program was incredibly secretive it's never really mentioned by the administration in any manner we asked Dr. Milburn how and why the Tuskegee program was just so secretive there are whites who read the black press they read it for a variety of different reasons so it's not like white America doesn't know. There are occasions where it is publicized in, in the white press that uh, we have these people who are flying uh, uh, airplanes of their Negroes. And so there, there's not that it's a big secret. It's just not something that's really pushed forward. Um, it's not like the, the Navajo talkers, for example, which has to be a secret. Um, it's just something that people choose to pay attention to or choose not to um pretty much now having said that the military has no especially the power elite the same people who are in line with the publishing of the use of negro manpower those folks definitely don't have a desire to push it out our guest warren mott talks about just how good these tuskegee pilots were and also just how um, exclusive the club was they were not accepting all applicants in fact there were only accepting the best and the brightest. The Tuskegee Airmen were fantastic pilots. Uh, and ironically, the government would only allow a certain number out of each class to become a Tuskegee Airmen pilot. So what, as a result of it, many of these people went through, and these men were fantastic, and they did everything. Uh, Alex is a perfect example. Alex got right up, passed everything, he could have been a pilot, except they said, I'm sorry, we're only taking this number, and they were only you taking can't go. 33 or whatever, yeah. Yeah, so, so the, they, and they all were, were uh, exceptional because they worked the hardest they could possibly work to be the best there was. Yeah. It, it made a big difference, too, because they were really, really out there working to do it because they realized it wasn't just for them. The Tuskegee Airmen were finally placed into action when they shipped out of Tuskegee, Alabama, on April 2nd, 1943. Operating from North Africa, they began making fighter escort operations on the Sicily invasion, preparing for the Allied invasion of that island, which would begin a few months later in July. We asked Dr. Milburn to discuss the first operations in the Mediterranean theater for the Tuskegee Airmen. Actually, in North Africa, they're doing a lot. In addition to flying with bomber protection, they were primarily um, doing a lot of strafing of railroads and uh, units, German units on the move to and from the battlefield. A lot of what we would call today close, close air support kind of missions. Yeah. Um, it's later on that they become um, known for their support of bomber missions. The Tuskegee Airmen were mostly doing bomber escorts uh, in fighter planes. They had a sterling record. I mean, so much so that a rumor developed that they'd never lost a bomber. Out of the hundreds and hundreds of bombers that they did escort, they did lose 
reported 25. But there's still an incredibly low number against an opponent like the German Luftwaffe. Uh, these B-51s that they're protecting, you know, they had valuable cargo of not just the bombs, but that was a 10-man crew in every bomber. And the men, you know, in these oral histories and oral interviews would talk about that, that if we lost one, they knew that they lost 10 men. It wasn't just one pilot. We talked to Warren Mott about the dangerous service that was fighter escort missions against the Germans. To start with, uh, the, the, the cover aircraft was what the P-50, P-51s were that the Tuskegee Airmen were using. They were supposed to protect those bombers. Those bombers came in almost wing to wing, touching, and the fighters worked around them when they got into enemy territory. Uh, again, they could only go so far because the gas consumption. Right. So they had to, as they were winning and fighting and getting the air bases taken over by the Americans, they were able to come in there and do this. The, the uh, 332nd was one of the best fighting groups there was. And when they went into combat, uh, it was their job to protect those bombers and not let any enemy aircraft to it. And on the way to a target, the Tuskegee Airmen were fighting off the enemy aircraft who were trying to get them. Once they got into an area where the bomber mission was taking place, uh, they had to get away because the Germans had zeroed their weapons in and they were flying into flak because they knew exactly what altitude. And that's right. another thing with bomber missions that uh, you, you were locked in when you did it. But being a fighter escort, uh, was extremely difficult and a dangerous job. At Tuskegee, more pilots are earning their wings. In a short while, these young officers will be full-fledged combat flyers, taking their place at the controls of our fighter planes. High above their native land they fly. Tomorrow, what a surprise the Nazis will get when black, brown, yellow, and white men, all Americans, land on the airfields of Berlin. We talked to Warren Mott about just what these Tuskegee Airmen were flying. They didn't have the best planes at the start of their service, but pretty soon after, they're flying the P-51 Mustangs. Um, that's what the Red Tails flew in the European theater, and they were excellent planes, excellent fighters. Warren talks about the planes flown by the Tuskegee Airmen and their formidable opponents, the German Luftwaffe. When you think about the two different types of aircraft, and by the time the Tuskegee Airmen got into it too also, you got to realize that these German pilots were pretty proficient because they had been flying all these missions. And if you are a pilot in the Luftwaffe, you never got a chance to go home, period. Yeah. You flew to the end of the war. It didn't matter how many missions you did. So, and, and a lot of times the time ran out on those guys, but they also got very good at what they were doing. Once the Tuskegee Airmen got into it, and then you're talking about our P-51 aircraft, which was a pretty fantastic airplane, compared to the uh, uh, Fokker 109 and the, the uh, uh, 190, they also had uh, the ME-262, which was a jet aircraft, but that right. was coming in toward the end of the war, and the only problem with that aircraft was that it burned up fuel fast. I mean, it was using jet fuel, so it wasn't. It was fast and deadly, but it didn't have much time on the target. Where the other two aircraft we talked about, 
And when you compare the German Luftwaffe to the American, <laughs> our, our P-51s could outfly them. Uh, they were much faster. But the Tuskegee Airmen didn't just simply protect bomber runs and fend off German fighter planes. They also made direct attacks on rail depots and weapons stashes and industrial facilities in the German heartland. We talked to Warren about just how dangerous a strafing run could be during World War II. Strafing runs were probably more dangerous mission because you're not only vulnerable to whoever's in the air trying to get you, but you're vulnerable to the the artillery and the and the ground fire, including rifle fire. Because yeah. when you're strafing, you're coming in low and you're coming into a target and you're zeroed in on that thing. The enemy, basically around all these bases that they had petroleum and all the manufacturing, they had all kinds of protection around those, those places. So a strafing mission, you were coming in low and you were vulnerable to everything. One of the most famous Tuskegee Airmen was Charles McGee from Cleveland, Ohio. As these men have almost nearly all died, the most important way to retell their story is through the extensive oral histories they provided. Charles McGee flew in his 30 years in the Air Force over 400 missions, which is a ton of missions. He later served uh, at Lockbourne Air Force Base with the Tuskegee Airmen in Columbus, Ohio. And like we said, he's from Cleveland. Charles McGee is still alive. He's 100 years old. On his 100th birthday a few months ago, he flew two flights from Dover Air Force Base as a co-pilot. Total badass. I mean, just indicative of the type of people that were Tuskegee Airmen. They were, and really still are, in the case of Colonel McGee, the best that America had to offer in the world. We listen as he describes, you know, the first German plane he shot down during the war in a dogfight. We were escorting... uh bombers that had targets at, uh, at well, the airfield and the nearby rail marshalling yards were the targets of the day. But it happened that uh, some folk wolf tried to penetrate the uh, bombers we were escorting and happened on the side and where so on that my element was dispatched. And that's the way we did the lead of the formation would dispatch so everybody didn't turn on them an element left because the others are still doing their job for the whole whole bomber bomber stream. But uh, the, as I turned into the plane, I uh, guess he thought he could dive away, and so I was able to follow, get on his tail, and all I can say is that uh, as we were jinking around is the word we used uh, to, to avoid, but he made made a right turn that put him right in my gun sights where perhaps had he made a left, sharp left turn, I wasn't quite in position to fire and darn, but, but fortunately um, hit the aircraft in a way that destroyed and the, the plane crashed. And just like we discussed earlier, the, the Tuskegee Airmen and the 332nd Fighter Group were a closely held secret during the war. We hear this story from Warren as, he, as told to him by Captain Harold Sawyer Jr., from Columbus, Captain Sawyer, he shot down two Nazi planes in 1944 while keeping his P-51 Mustang, um, you know, from getting hit. He's flying out of Ramatelli Air Force Base in, in Italy. He received the Distinguished Flying Cross for his heroism in the Mediterranean. But this story is indicative of people's lack of knowledge at the time 
of the Red Tails and how they were so good that even you know some of these racist army officers just didn't care. They wanted them by their side. One time, and I'll just relate this little story, Harold told me that they had flown a mission. The, the, the Tuskegee Airmen had red tails. They right. were called the red tail devils. And their, their nose on the aircraft of the people went, and the tails were red. And it was distinctive. When his unit got back, the 332nd, back to the base, the bomber crews that he was escorting, the, one, the man who was in charge of it, come back and says, who are those people with those red tails that, that were protecting us? Those guys were fantastic. He says, get in the Jeep, I'll take you down there and show you. So this commander took this, who was the commander of this bomber group, down to where Harold's unit was. And when the guy looked in, and you got to remember, the guy was from Georgia, yeah. <laughs> the deep south. And he walked in there and saw all these black people. He says, these are the ones that were protecting me? The red tails, yeah. Yeah, he said, yes. He didn't say anything. Went back to his base the next morning. Harold said they got up, they were doing the briefing on where the missions were and what to go. The guy holds up his hand. He says, I want them red-tailed devils to protect me on this next mission. <laughs> so he said it was the best thing for race relationships right there. He showed them they yeah. could do it. We also play you a clip here from General and former Secretary of State Colin Powell as he's honoring the Tuskegee Airmen at a 2007 ceremony in which President Bush awarded the surviving 200 or so Tuskegee Airmen with the Congressional Medal of Honor, which is our nation's highest civilian honor. The question is begged, why? Why would we do this for all of these years? Why would we serve a nation that would not serve us? Two answers, I think. One, notwithstanding what they had put in the Constitution about us being property, we still believed in the vision that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution set forth for the kind of America that could be in this new land. We believed in that. We had to believe in it. What else would we have to believe in? And the other reason, I think, is that military service, laying down your life for your country, was about the only way in which, for so many years, blacks could demonstrate that they were equal to any white citizen. But I know to the depth of my heart that the only reason I'm able to stand proudly before you today is you stood proudly for America 60 years ago. In 1997, our guest, Dr. Anthony Milburn, wrote his dissertation for the Ohio State Department of History on the mutiny of the 477th Bomber Union in Columbus, Indiana. This was as the war was winding down. The 477th, an all-black unit, was denied use of the officers' quarters and other issues surrounding the segregation at the base. They basically had a rebellion, a mutiny. The armed forces were still completely segregated at this point. It's not an easy system to continue, and events like the 1945 mutiny uh, were an example of just how unsustainable this Jim Crow military system was. Black pilots, it was a bomber training base. Most of the white pilots actually were there as um, trainers or at least tagged or labeled as administrators, whether they were training or not. Very few of the training training pilots, however, were, in fact, African-American. It is an interesting story in the sense that it occurs uh, just before the war is over. I mean, like just before, just uh, uh, FDR 
passes away in the midst of this event. Uh, Truman takes over, all these kind of things. We're rapidly moving to the end of the war, which is part of the reason why they don't actually go to battle. The 477th Bomber Group doesn't actually get deployed because by the time they're ready to go, it's a done deal. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that when they bring this group together uh, in an effort to cut down training time, they bring back a lot of fighter pilots uh, to reclassify them to be bomber pilots. And since many of them were, by definition at that point, um, combat trained, combat experienced, they really weren't interested in any of the quote-unquote hokey-doke that they were uh, going to inquire. The commanding officer um, of the training base is a southerner, acts in a southern way, has a southern mentality and puts in place a number of different regulations, some of which were in fact against military regulations regarding race. Um, and that's one of the things that these gentlemen pushed against. They are also, uh, the, the battle at, or the, the mutiny, rebellion, protest at Freeman Field is simply the latest um, of these kind of things. Suffragefield, Michigan, a lot of these guys had already been at Suffragefield, Michigan, where there had been a similar incident. And this particular one came from them being told they could not use the officers club. In the end, uh, 103, I believe, uh, if I recall right, were brought up on charges. Eventually, only three were forwarded. Um, and not for mutiny, which was the original charge. Think about that, mutiny, time of war. In the end, three of them were simply charged with being disrespectful and pushing a, a provost marshal or military policeman. Following our victory in World War II, a number of all-black units were transferred to Columbus, Ohio, to Lockbourne Army Airfield, as it was called, in Lockbourne in southern Franklin County. This is an all-black base full of Tuskegee Airmen, was later renamed Rickenbacker uh, Air National Guard Base as it is now after the famous World War I flying ace Eddie Rickenbacker from Columbus. He's the subject of one of our very first episodes, Ohio vs. Death, uh, which we also recorded with, with Warren Mott. Um, Warren has a full-size replica of Eddie Rickenbacker's boyhood home uh, in the back there where he has all the planes and the tanks at the museum. Uh, you heard me right, a full replica of Eddie Rickenbacker's childhood home, the city wouldn't allow him to actually move the the old house, and so he had he had some people build him one of his own. We talk with Warren though about the Tuskegee Airmen at Lockbourne, just a few miles from his museum. Again, go to MottsMilitaryMuseum.org. We talked about their years, the Tuskegee Airmen's years in Columbus. Lockbourne Air Base actually became completely uh, an all-black base when. Uh, Truman decided that he was going to uh, desegregate the military. Uh, he ended up deciding to bring all of the black troops into Lockbourne Air Base at that time. And everybody on the base basically was black and they were all in charge of everything. And this is the first time that happened because uh, up until that point, white officers were the ones that were actually uh, taking care and telling the, the, the other blacks, including officers, that they, uh, what to do. Right. But when, when they all came to, to, to Lockbourne, that whole changed, which was wonderful, because then they all became in charge of themselves. And, and the ones that I talked to said they were all proud because for the first time ever, 
everybody around them in every capacity from the main officers right down to the, 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 the troops that were doing the work, they were all black and it, was a, it, was, it gave them a great spree de corps. Many of these men would stick around Central Ohio. They would become important members of the Central Ohio community, uh, become leaders. Dr. Milburn talks about the integration of the Tuskegee Airmen into Columbus society in the 1940s and 50s. Well, when the war comes to an end and there's some question about what to do with these African-American pilots, one of the places that they decided to park them was Lockbourne Air Force Base here in Columbus, Ohio. Um, technically, Obets, but, you know. Right. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of pushback. There is pushback from the mayor, um, a little hesitation on the part of the governor. Um, but eventually they move in. They get settled. There is an effort through the leadership, which would include um, um, Benjamin Davis Jr., uh, to to massage these these attitudes. So you begin to see people invited onto the base. You begin to see air shows, um, a lot of interaction with the the surrounding community to bring them into into understanding that this was the the way of the world. Um, Lockbourne's position is very important. It um, becomes part of the, the SAC community, which is important to understand what's going on with the Cold War. Um, and Strategic Air Command. Correct. Strategic yeah. Air Command, right. Um, as far as becoming leaders in the community, we can go back to the Freeman Field incident. Um, a lot of those folks are, uh, well, I don't know about a lot, but some of the men are from Ohio. Um, and in fact, their civilian uh, lawyer is from Ohio. He's a member of the NAACP um, legal defense um, team. And he would go on to become the first uh, mayor of Cincinnati, and that would be uh, Theodore Berry. One of those men who become a leader in the community was Lieutenant John Rosemont, a bombardier and navigator in his B-25 during the war. You can see his flight jacket on display at Mott's Military Museum but he became the first African-American elected to the Columbus City Council in 1969. He would run for mayor. Uh, we talked to Warren Mott about Columbus's own Lieutenant John Rosemont. Lieutenant Rosen, uh, John Rosemont's uniform, I mean, I got his flight jacket. Yeah, the jacket. Yeah, and he was a lieutenant, and he was a navigator, a bombardier, and uh, he was flying in B-17s. So again, now you start talking about what was that like? Well, they were dead targets. Uh, he was lucky. He survived off his missions. And the great part about... How'd John, you get his jacket? His wife ended up donating that after he'd passed away. And he became a doctor, which I thought was so interesting because uh, after he had served as a navigator bombardier in the Tuskegee Airmen in World War II, he got a medical degree in 1951 uh, from Howard University. And he also got the Outstanding Service Award from Howard University uh, in medicine in 1980. Uh, wow. He also was a, uh, he was elected to city council, uh, and that was in 1969. And then he actually ran for mayor of the city of Columbus, uh, but he didn't make it, but he always stayed involved in politics and helping. And he was always one that was very much interested in the veterans and uh, he, he was uh, uh, on the board of trustees of a whole bunch of different groups, the Ohio Theater, uh, Franklin University, Columbus Symphony Orchestra, wow. all these different things. So he was very 
uh, involved in the community. And, and, and like I say, even up until the time he passed away, he was very much active in, in the veterans and the Tuskegee Airmen organization. Finally, on July 26, 1948, President Truman issued Executive Order 9981 to desegregate the armed forces. It abolished discrimination, I quote, on the basis of race, color, religion, or national origin. We talked to Dr. Milburn about the reasons surrounding the desegregation of the military and why it was personal for President Truman. And also we, we talked with Warren Mott about just, just how silly and inefficient it was to have two separate militaries, one white and one black. In terms of Truman and his executive order, um, there's a number of things going on, and that's pushed not just by the Tuskegee Airmen, but the overall, a lot of experience that surrounded uh, Truman and, and his world. Truman had actually served in World War I, had encountered some of these uh, African-Americans that we talked about earlier, uh, not on the combat field, but he had just crossed their paths. And then he began to hear about some of the stories that of experiences of African-American veterans um, as they encountered post-World War I, and then again, post-World War II experiences, to include one African-American veteran who had been beaten to, to the point of being blind, uh, others being lynched, being lynched in uniform, and these things appeared to have weighed down on him. Uh, and so he then came forward with the Executive Order 9981. And he realized this, Truman realized this. He saw what they had done, that being they, meaning African-Americans, fighting in um, the European theater. And he realized that it was Balk. And he, again, he's from Missouri. He's the show me state, right? And he had been shown that this didn't work. So as we move forward, he pushes this because it is an, ex it is an expensive way to run a military, to essentially have two of everything. Um, and so he took advantage of that. He played on that and also pushed that forward. The integration, though, doesn't come after the order. The integration is actually forced upon us by um, virtue of the Korean War. That's really what forced it after Truman signs this executive order, and that's because of the inefficiencies that were seen there um, versus inefficiencies that were seen during World War II. That's an interesting thing, too, because in combat, uh, one of the things that Harold told me that was difficult was they, when they, when they segregated them, they made sure that there was black mechanics. Uh, uh, everybody in their unit was black. If something happened in a white unit and they needed, uh, say, a, an aircraft mechanic, they had some of the best aircraft mechanics there were, but they would not take them from a black unit and put them in a white unit, yeah. which was ridiculous. But at the thinking of the time, they felt that they ought to stay together, work together. But still, there was that separation, which was very difficult. We talk here in closing to, to Warren Mott, who is an honorary member of the Tuskegee Airmen, just about the importance of the Red Tails. Well, I think it was really the beginning of, of getting rid of all the segregation. I mean, uh, they proved it. They proved that they were just like everybody else and sometimes much better than everybody else. <laughs> and it, you got like Alex Boudreau, who actually became the first black air traffic controller in America right here in Port Columbus is where he 
was, became an air traffic controller. And that had never happened before. So everything that they were doing actually proved the fact that they were just as capable as any other white people. So, but they, they were groundbreakers, and they were good, and they set an example. I think that, that's it, and they set a fantastic example for the future generation. I was honored too when they made my wife and I, both of us are honorary members of oh, the Tuskegee right, Airmen. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a great honor because uh, we, we enjoyed being with them and we went to their Christmas parties and everything else. But since the original Tuskegee Airmen have all passed, except uh, I think Hilton Carter is the only one that is the local one that's still with us. Uh, all the rest of them have passed away. So it, it's, it's changed a little bit. So we conclude uh, with Dr. Milburn. He discusses the importance of the oral histories of the Tuskegee Airmen. Only a few remain alive now. Uh, and how we can continue to learn from these American heroes. That's, I guess, part of why I do what I do. Also, you know, I'm a, I am a Tuskegee descendant. As we lose the opportunity to talk to and listen to the story of these gentlemen um, directly, that's all we're going to have is oral interviews that are currently stored at um, Maxwell Air Force Base or the Smithsonian or what ends up in an occasional book, occasional film, occasional documentary. That's all we're going to have. So the more time we put in understanding it now, why we still have their first-hand voice is important. It's appropriate for us to end with the words of one of the still-living Tuskegee Airmen, Colonel Charles McGee, who grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. He's talking here about the importance to him. Uh, it's an interview about um, President Obama's election in 2008, I believe, and just how the Tuskegee Airmen helped break down the barriers of segregation in this country and really helped kick off the era of civil rights reform. You have the Tuskegee Airmen in, in 43 and 44, Major League Baseball in 1947 with Jackie Robinson, the military in 1948. Uh, followed by the schools thanks to the landmark civil rights decision in 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education, that struck down that antiquated separate but equal standard set in Plessy versus Ferguson in the late 19th century, 1896, uh, a decision that legalized segregation. We leave you with the words of, of Colonel Charles McGee of the Tuskegee Airmen about what they accomplished. Because we grew up in segregation, the work that we did, that uh, the Tuskegee Airmen did, that's the way in which the general public became aware of the fact that African Americans could do anything anybody else could do. Even though the War Department had issued a study back in 1925 that said Negroes didn't have the intelligence or the courage or the leadership to be in combat units, we proved that we did. Actually, in our hearts, we knew this. Human beings know what their capacities are. The thing that causes them to be classified and stereotypes are the attitudes of a larger group in society. In our country, it was race. In other countries, it's religion. We've been able to beat that. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see. I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books which 
book recommendation for the episode is Freedom Flyers by J. Todd Moy. Uh, it's from the Oxford Press 2010. Uh, really the best book I could find about the Tuskegee Airmen. Gives the entire history of the Freedom Flyers of World War II. And Moy uses some 800 uh, interviews that he was a part of collecting to tell the true story of the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, you can go find that book. We'll have a link in the uh, show notes as well if you're looking to do a little more uh, learning about the the red tails that'll do it for season four as we celebrate black history month in our small way here at ohio versus the world Uh, special thanks to our guest dr anthony milburn the chairman of the humanities department and history professor at central state university in wilberforce ohio and also warren mott the director of mott's military museum in groveport here in franklin county one of the real hidden gems for for history buffs Go to mottsmilitarymuseum.org uh, and check out their display on the Tuskegee Airmen when you're there as well uh, and say hi to Warren for me. Uh, great museum. It, it can take as, you know, as short as an hour up to, to many hours to go through all the stuff that he has from the Revolutionary War all the way through the space program um, and real, real stuff. Uh, so just so impressive what he's built over the years down there in Groveport and appreciate his contribution to Ohio history. Thanks guys again for listening. Follow us on Facebook, our almost daily updates on the show and on Ohio history season five. Uh, and if you follow us on Facebook, you'll get these updates throughout the spring. Uh, we'll probably start here this summer, probably around Memorial day, just uh, three or four months away. We'll focus on Ohio and the presidency entirely in season five, Ohio, the home to eight U S presidents, the first ladies, A ton of presidential history here, even outside of those eight men. It's an election year, and uh, we're going to be covering those presidents uh, and also all the other famous things that happened and important things that happened in the Buckeye State. Um, Some of those will be two-part episodes. We're planning to do a deep dive into, you know, this race for the White House and, and all the people that have actually reached the top, the Ohioans that have done it. We'll release a a short preview podcast this spring as we get closer to releasing those episodes. And we're just so excited to bring you the story of Ohio and the presidency. So be on the lookout for that probably around Memorial Day. We don't have an exact release date yet for Season 5. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, Tell your friends about the show. Share our posts. uh, Share our episodes. We're not going to be adding any new content here for the next couple of months. Uh, It's still a great time for us to build the audience as we look forward to season five, um, you can always email the show at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com with show ideas, your comments, uh, any other things that you think we need to be aware of. So thanks again for listening to season four. I think it's our best season yet. Uh, and we'll see you in a few months for season five of Ohio V the World. My name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. 
In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.